So I'm just going to read from Ephesians uh, chapter 1. I'm going to begin at verse 3. The verse I'm going to be focusing on tonight is verse 7, but I'll just read from verse 3 to verse 7. So we start in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And then the verse we're going to focus on tonight, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I've actually gone a bit further than I meant to, but hey, you'll soon find out later on. Okay, let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank you for the riches of your grace in Christ, and we want to thank you for the riches that you've blessed us with in your word and in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that by the Spirit's power, You will give us understanding, and even more than understanding, you'll give us that desire to be obedient and to live in the truth and in the promises of your word. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. To see ourselves as others see us, that's one of my personal favourite lines from the the poetry of Burns. But you know, it can be a, a pretty humbling thing at times to see ourselves in this way, though other times it can be surprising, can even be gratifying to, to realize how others actually see us, what they actually think of us. The humbling side, though, there are one or two instances that stick out in my memory of the humbling of, that this can bring. Like the time my wife and children gleefully pointed out that a bald spot was appearing on the back of my head. I have to be honest and say, at first, I couldn't believe it. Hadn't a barber told me once that I had such thick hair, I would never go bald. I wish wish I could go back and get that tip back. Anyway, and then there was the time, and you know, as I I think about this, I I realise it's amazing how prominent barbers have actually been in my life. There was the time when I was sitting in the barber's chair, and when suddenly I started to notice all this silvery hair floating down around about me. Where was this coming from? I wondered. I have dark brown hair. Is it blowing over maybe from the chair beside me? Then the terrible truth struck me. I don't have dark brown hair anymore. And to top all of it off, there have been a number of occasions recently when I've said to Elaine things along the line when I've been a bit my miserable self as usual. What's that old guy over there doing? I wonder what that old codger there is up to. And her reply has been usually something along the lines of, that old codger is probably younger than you. (laughs) How even truth that is quietly spoken at times can hurt. How it can wound. Another side to to all of this, though, is that one of the great joys, I believe, in ministry is to tell people 
who've maybe got an undeservedly low opinion of themselves, how precious they actually are to God and his people. Well, here at the heart of Paul's great outpouring of praise to God in Ephesians 1, here in this verse 7, we are revealed as we really are. But far more importantly, God and his heart toward us are revealed as they really are. Let's begin then with what this verse tells us about what we are. What we are, that is, to begin, that we are slaves. That's where it begins, for the key word in this verse is the word redemption. And its background, the the Greek background to this, is that it's a technical term originally that was used in the commerce, that was used in the business of slavery. And it refers to a slave being set free upon the payment of a price, of a ransom. Now you see, in the background here are really hints, undertones of the exodus. Of that great saving event in Israel's history where God acted to set his people free from their slavery in Egypt. But at the same time, right in the very foreground, stands the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who will lead his people out of a much greater bondage in a new exodus. Indeed, this is the very language that was used by Jesus at his transfiguration in Luke chapter 9 because there he spoke in in verse 31 about the departure and that is literally the exodus that he was about to accomplish for his people by faith, the new people of God, at Jerusalem. The wider teaching of Ephesians, though, and the wider teaching of the Bible tells us just how much greater, just how much more significant this second exodus led by Jesus, made possible by Jesus, actually is, even in comparison to something as incredible as that first exodus. For you see, we are slaves, not just to Pharaoh, not held merely by physical chains, but rather we are slaves to Satan and all the dark forces that are at work in this world. Ephesians 2.2 talks of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And Ephesians 6.12, it reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now you see, this is something I believe that that every man and every woman has to grasp. That once sin entered into this world, that once in Adam, mankind made that first choice to sin, that that changed both our fundamental human nature and the nature of this world we live in. For we now, by nature, are a race inclined to sin. That is our our natural inclination. That is our bias. And now, in this world, because we, by choice, have opened up the way for the powers of evil to be at work in this world, well, so then, These powers are powerful. They are active in our world. They are. 
God, of course, is is sovereign and all-powerful. He is, but the power of evil in this world is great. And we, as men and women in and of ourselves, cannot stand against this power, cannot set ourselves free from this power. You see, we chose to sin, and we choose to sin, because we thought that to do so, that that would set us free. If we just do our own thing, that we'll be free from any hindrance, we'll be free from any limits, that we'll be free, free to enjoy all the pleasures of this world as and when we want, free to do whatever we please, whenever we please. But what man found out in Adam, and what man has been experiencing ever since, is that in the end, sin doesn't set us free. Rather, it brings us and keeps us in chains. It makes us enslaved to the forces of evil and unable in and of ourselves, lacking the power, the ability in and of ourselves to set ourselves free. So what are we? We are slaves. But in addition to this, we are also dead. Dead in sin. We see this verse also talks about the the forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. Now you see, in the Bible, the different words that are used, that are all translated into English by the one word sin, these words, three main words, slightly different words, have got slightly different shades of meaning. One word, the word that's actually used here in this verse, it focuses on the idea of consciously and deliberately choosing to take a false step. Consciously and deliberately choosing to deviate from the right path. Another word carries the idea of to miss the mark. To miss the goal, to to fall in some way short of the required standard. And finally, there's another variation on this same theme, that, that sin is making a mistake. That sin is making the wrong choice. But you know, don't let that word mistake give you the wrong idea. For here's what Harold Honer has to say. He says that in the Bible, all three of these words denote more than an inadvertent mistake. Rather, they denote a conscious and willful act against God's holiness and righteousness. Human beings are held responsible for these acts of treachery against God, and sin needs to be punished. So you see, it's not just that we're slaves to sin, and particularly to the the evil powers that stand behind sin. No, it's the fact that sin leads to punishment, and that sin leads ultimately to death. Because our sin, the fact that we have chosen to sin, this offends a God who is holy. A God who's totally and completely morally good and pure. This brings us under his judgment, and this leads to death, to physical death at the end of this life and spiritual death throughout our life. All because our sin separates us from God. Our sin separates us from the life of a holy God. And so our sin makes it impossible for us to truly know God, 
to have true understanding of his word, to live a life of genuine spiritual discernment and obedience. It leads to death in this life and to eternal spiritual death, to an eternal spiritual separation from God, from good, from all that is love at this life's end. You see, without Christ, this is what is waiting for every man and for every woman. Romans 5.12 sums up much of this where it says, Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So again then, what are we? We are slaves. Slaves to the powers of darkness. And we are dead. Spiritually dead in sin. And unable to do anything about this by ourselves. In addition, we are alienated. We are alienated from God. This is our our present, this is our here and now experience. That is that basically sin has left us as broken people living in a broken world. For the alienation that sin leads to in our relationship with God, this then rolls on to affect us, our relationships, our world, everything that our lives touches. And no matter how good at times maybe life seems to be, Yet still, as we look within ourselves, as we look around, still we sense, even in our best moments, never mind our worst, that there's something missing. That there's something wrong. That still life isn't quite what it could be, what it should be. Romans 8.22 puts it this way. It says, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You see, that's why for so many people, nothing seems to quite satisfy. And that's why we find people searching for that next possession, searching for that extra bit of prestige, for that new experience. That's why our community life is broken. That's why nations are continually at war. It's all because... We are broken people living in a broken world with all of this rooted in the fact of our basic alienation from God. So this is what we are as women, as men. This is what we are in ourselves, in our humanity. We are slaves to the powers of darkness. We are spiritually dead in our sin. And we are therefore alienated. Alienated from God. With this alienation. Leading to brokenness. That's what we are. But now we move on. To the good news. And there is good news. That is who God is. Who God is. And of course one thing we can be sure of. As we've already touched on. Is the fact that God is. Holy. Unjust, he is. And so sin, all that is evil, all that is touched and tainted by evil, is an offence to God. 
And this offence just cannot be ignored, for God is a God of justice and righteousness. These qualities in themselves are a reflection and outworking of his holiness. So sin then, and the sinner, that which offends God, that which tears apart and distorts and destroys his good creation, this, they, we, must be punished. But thank God that God is not only holy and just, but that he is also a God of love. He is a gracious God. He's a God who shows his grace, that is his love for the unworthy and undeserving and ungrateful. And that when we were lost in our sin, with no way out, nothing we could do to save ourselves, and that God then came at that moment in Jesus Christ and rescued us. He rescued us in the in Christ God paid that ransom that was necessary to set us free. As he shed his blood, as he gave that life, that precious life for us on the cross. There, on that cross, the God who had no sin, the perfect, holy, sinless Son of God, God in human flesh, God become man, there he hung in our place. In my place, in your place, there he paid the price of our sin. He did what only he could do. That is, as a man, take the punishment man deserves. As the God-man, offer up the only price that could cover all our sin. His perfect, sinless life given for us. His blood on the cross shed for us. Sinclair Ferguson, though, makes a point here that I agree with and would even like to to add to. And that is the fact that all of this, God did willingly. You see, God didn't have to, to force Jesus to come and give himself for us. And Jesus didn't have to talk the Father into letting him come. No, all of this was the plan of God that Jesus willingly, because of his infinite love, For each one of us played his part in, as it says in this verse, of our redemption, of the ransom, the price that that God paid for us, the blood of Christ. It says that this was in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That is that this act of unbelievable, undeserved generosity, this act of grace, that this was actually simply an expression of who God is. That this was the abundance, the overflow of the riches of his grace. No, the sacrifice of Christ wasn't forced. It wasn't something done uh, grudgingly. Rather, this was a natural, maybe more accurately, was a supernatural expression of who God is. The Father, the Son. And the Spirit. But you know, this is particularly relevant in the days in which we we now live. For there are people around today, particularly some popular writers and speakers who would call themselves evangelicals, who struggle with things like substitutionary atonement, with concepts 
like redemption, like the thought of Christ's blood being shed to pay the price, the ransom of our sin. You see, they feel that these are are crude concepts that don't tie in with, with what they believe must be dominant. That is God as a God of love. And the thought of the Father sending the Son to be punished, sending Him to take our punishment, well, that they feel is cruel, is unworthy of God. To the extent that Steve Chalk in, in one of his books, so this was also a statement that was actually made earlier by another author, he says that the cross understood in the sense of Jesus taking on the punishment for the sin demanded by the Father for our sin. He said that this is, is some kind of cosmic child abuse. And also there are those who object to lyrics in hymns such as in Christ alone, you know, that, that line that speaks of that on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. And indeed, they actually changed these lyrics to things like that on the cross, the love of God was magnified. But you see, I, I want to say to you, the facts are that actually, that both of these are true. That at the cross, both God's incredible love and His holiness and resultant wrath at sin. They are both revealed. And just because in our society today, and in part of what's called the church today, just because we don't like things like sin and wrath and judgment, yet that does not change the fact that these things are there, that they are taught in the Bible. And those who try to deny this can only do so if they ignore or willfully misinterpret the parts of the Bible they don't like. Verses like this one here tonight in Ephesians, which clearly talks of the blood of Christ being the means of our redemption, of our ransom being paid for our sin. And also many other verses. One example, 1 John 4 verse 10, where it says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. You see, it's all there in that verse. The love of God and the demands of the holiness of God, all there in one verse. Both are there. And both need to be held together if we're going to have any kind of true understanding of what actually happened. At the cross. And as for that thought of the cross as some kind of cosmic child abuse, well, that is, I believe, a total misunderstanding of the nature of the Trinity and of the nature of the relationships within the Trinity. Because you see, as we said earlier, the Father sent the Son as an expression of His love to meet the demands of His holiness. But Jesus willingly came. Why? Because of that same love for us. And because within him, within Jesus, who shares that divine nature, there is that same desire that the demands of holiness and righteousness and justice be met. And as for people changing verses of hymns or lines of hymns that they don't like, verses that actually teach that, which for many centuries has been the the mainstream understanding of the church. I just say, well, what a cheek. 
If you don't like it, find something else to sing, but certainly don't mess around with what was actually the writer's original intention. Okay, well, we've looked so far in this verse at what we are and at who God is. Let's just finish by looking finally at what now is ours. At just what the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ has won for us. And this is actually set out for us in the the first part of this verse. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So redemption then is what God has done. Sending Jesus to shed his blood as the sacrifice for our sin. And forgiveness is the effect. We experience forgiveness in our lives because of what God has done for us in Christ. But you know, there's something here in the way that Paul expresses all this that I believe is of great practical relevance and significance for many Christians today. And that is the fact that the words that Paul uses here and the tense that he uses as he expresses these words, well, this makes clear to us that the forgiveness that has been won for us by Christ, that this is a here and now possession. That the sacrifice of Christ, that that sacrifice that dealt with all man's sin once and for all back there at Calvary, that this is something that has present, ongoing effect. You see, that as we put our faith in Christ, that we were set free from the punishment of sin, and we were set free from the the accompanying sense of guilt that that sin brings, that in Christ we are forgiven, and we are now forgiven. That this is what God intends to be, the present experience of his people. In what way is this significant and relevant for God's people today? Well, in that I believe there are far too many Christians today who are living under a crushing burden of guilt. Far too many Christians. Sometimes maybe that's because they they haven't really yet fully grasped the magnitude of what God actually did there at the cross. And the fact that because of that, That there is no sin of man. There's nothing that we can do. Nothing that we have done that can ever outweigh that sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. At other times though, this is maybe because of the activity of the evil one. For you see, guilt can be a, a healthy thing for us. Like pain, you see, guilt can serve as a a warning signal to Christians that were in a place of danger. But what we need to, to know is that whenever God convicts us, whenever it's God that's doing that, and whenever God brings a sense of guilt into our lives, when God does that, God points the finger. God lets us know where we're going wrong because God wants us to put it right. And for a while we might try to fight that. For a while we might try in some way to resist what God is saying. But we get to the point, because God works in our hearts, where we know 
where we're going wrong. And once we reach that point, then that sin can be dealt with. Our sins of guilt can be removed. Because God's provided the way as we confess it, face up to it. As we repent of it, turn away from it. And as we do what we can to affect restoration, as we put things right where we are able. When we do these things, then our sin is covered. Our sin is dealt with in the here and now, right now, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As 1 John 1 verse 9 famously says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you see, what we need to then do is believe that and go on and live in it. But here's where the the problem comes in in all this. Here's where guilt becomes unhealthy. In that the Bible tells us in Revelation 12 verse 10 that the devil is the accuser of the brothers, that is, of the people of God. But you see, the devil, he works in a different way. He doesn't point the finger at a particular area. Rather, often he just gives us a a vague sense of guilt, a vague sense of uneasiness. We feel that there's something wrong in our lives, but we just don't know what that is. And so we live our lives Sometimes we live years of our lives under a dark cloud of guilt, tormented by an ongoing sense of guilt. I want to say to you, we need to deal with this again by claiming the forgiveness of Christ that God promises. Even when we don't feel it, we need to claim it by faith. And then we need to go on. To live in it. And we need to tell the devil when he tries to accuse us us, that there is no one so bad, no sin, so terrible. Again, that it cannot be dealt with by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, by the blood that he shed for us there. If we do that by faith, then eventually, I believe, the feelings will follow. So what I want to say to you tonight, if you know Jesus Christ, is you are forgiven. Believe it. Hold on to it. Hold on to that promise. Live in it, and soon you will know yourself. You will feel yourself to be forgiven. Listen again to what it says in Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him... Not in you, not in what you've done. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in what he did at the cross. Hear that promise. Believe in it. Live in it. Because it's true. In Christ, all your sin has been dealt with. Let's come in prayer to God. Father, we want to thank you for that 
that cross of Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for the redemption that is ours because of that sacrifice there, that we have been forgiven our sin. And that tonight we stand before you clothed in that righteousness of Christ. And if there is anything that's in our life that is separating us from you, then tonight that can be dealt with. That as we come to you in the name of Jesus, as we come confessing our sin, repenting of our sin, ready to do whatever we can and need to do to turn our back on our sin, Lord, we know tonight that we are forgiven. Lord, help us to hold that promise up and to use it as a shield to drive the evil one away. Lord, be at work in the hearts of your people and may each one of us here be able to live our lives with that burden of guilt and shame taken from us. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.